Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today, I've got a very special program, but I want to start out by asking you this. When you talk to wealth advisors, the ones I tell you to stay away from, what do they tell you? They tell you that you've got to have a diversified portfolio. And to them, all that means is stocks and bonds. Well, I believe that a portfolio diversification is an important thing to have, but diversification should mean more than just choosing between two classes of paper that react to the emotional whims of normal geopolitical undulations. Diversification also means having exposure to different asset classes, and if you're investing in real estate, for example, you might consider investing not only in apartment buildings, but office buildings or assisted living facilities, etc., etc. You might want to invest in farmland or businesses, too, while you're at it, and you might even want to invest outside of the country. So it may sound dangerous to invest outside the country, but for those of you who throw money into stocks and bonds, I pretty much guarantee you that you have some international exposure already and you just don't know it. And you don't know it because you're just blind to what's in your portfolio, which I think is actually more dangerous than investing directly in something that you know. So furthermore, right now, the dollar is actually really, really strong. So what does that mean? It means that we have really good buying power overseas. It also means as the dollar weakens, if you go back to some of my previous episodes, you know that I believe is imminent. It's what the Federal Reserve wants right now. And if that happens, the dollar weakens, then your international investment becomes, relatively speaking, more valuable. Now, what if I told you that you actually do have opportunities out there to leverage international investments in something that might even be highly addictive, has recently shown tremendous health benefits, and has a huge global market that's growing every day. Well, you'd probably want to learn more. And so when we come back, we're going to do exactly that as we talk to David Sewell of International Coffee Farms. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. 
Welcome back, everybody. Today, my guest is David Sewell, his founder of the International Coffee Farm. David is a Canadian with an extensive background in private equity and venture capital, who in recent years has turned his attention to Latin America, specifically coffee in Panama. David, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background first, David. I mean, you're a Canadian finance guy who obviously has had a great career, and now you live in Panama City and you're farming coffee. So how'd you get there? It's quite the journey, that's for sure. I lived in Canada until 1989, and then I left and went offshore. And as I tell everybody why I left, I went looking for warmer weather and lower taxes, and I found both. I had served in the Canadian Navy as a combat officer and a destroyer for 12 years in 1968 till 80, went back to school after after I got out of the Navy and did my MBA and did some work in the corporate world for a few years, realizing fairly quickly that I was making money for other people and not making enough for myself. So I decided to stop that and uh, left the country in 89, as I said, looking for other opportunities. Went on to Mexico, didn't really like doing anything there much because there's no rule of law and there still isn't. I went on from there to Costa Rica, did a little bit of real estate development work there, enjoyed the place immensely. It's absolutely beautiful when it comes to the ecology, but the infrastructure is not very good and still hasn't improved any in the last 10 or 15 years. Moved on from there, took a tour into Argentina, really, really liked Argentina and stayed for almost two years. But then I realized that I'd overcorrected. I went too far south. Uh, that warmer weather part wasn't there. They got snow down there in Buenos Aires. Oh, wow. So, so I had to leave, <laughs> correct my path <laughs> and go a little further you north. You went back to Canada on the other side, right? So Well, actually I didn't. I had worked in the U.S. for quite a few years, so I went back to the U.S. with a friend of mine in an internet company for two or three years. Finally, come 2006, then I was 56 and it was time to retire, move on to somewhere else and see what's going to happen with the rest of my life. So my wife and I decided that Panama would be a good spot. I'd been here before and had decided that this would likely be the best place for us to go. Uh, So we arrived here in 2007 and have been here ever since. Good for you. So we're talking today a little bit about specialty coffee. Can you tell us exactly what that means? You know, we can get some sense for it. There's more to it than just, you know, this is good coffee, right? That's right. Yeah, there's there's two kinds of coffee generally in the world. Robusta, that's the stuff you get in the can, grocery store and Folgers or anything else. It's grown in low-lying countries all around the world, large, large quantities in Vietnam and Indonesia and lots of other places. Reasonably good coffee, but it's commercial coffee. Arabica, the other varietal that can be grown usually at high altitudes and different circumstances, let's put it this way. That coffee is what becomes specialty coffee. It's not specialty coffee when it's grown, but it is specialty coffee when it is produced. And that means simply that you need to be able to pick the cherries one by one. You manage a tree individually and there's four or five thousand trees in a hectare or in a seven, eight hundred, nine hundred in an acre. These trees are managed individually. Cherries are when ripe, picked individually. Actually, when they are exactly ripe, not two days before or two days after, but when they are exactly perfect. And the people that pick the cherries pass through the farms multiple, multiple times, picking cherries one by one so that they are to become specialty. Those cherries are then processed in a very particular manner in a wet and dry coffee processing mill of which we have our own just finished building a brand new state-of-the-art five-star mill with imported equipment from the best manufacturer in the world in Brazil. And that coffee that we handpick individually 
Those cherries are processed in our mill very specifically to generate specialty coffee. Specialty coffee itself, having been grown, picked, harvested, and processed properly, is coffee that is considered zero defect. So in a pound of coffee with all those beans in that bag, you won't find one defective bean in that bag if it's very high-end specialty coffee. Of course, commercial coffee, you'll find all kinds of problems in there, but specialty coffee, you won't. Specialty coffee is defined specifically by the Specialty Coffee Association of America and others, Europe, for example, as well, and Panama, who have a rating system that is very complex that defines what specialty coffee is. It's a a process whereby the coffee is ground specifically, is brewed specifically, is cupped specifically by professionals who are called Q graders, who are people who really know what they're doing. They assign values to the coffee in approximately 10 different categories uh, while they're cupping it, and they come up with a a score. Sort of like uh, sommeliers uh, for, for wine? Exactly the same thing. Wine Spectator started these numbers on bottles 15 years ago, and now you can go into the store and see a 91 and a little story about where the grape came from, and you know what you're buying and what you're getting, where it came from, Specialty coffee over the last five to ten years has gone exactly the same path, and the numbers are, are almost the same. If it grades 80 to 100, then that's specialty coffee. I've never seen one grade higher than 94, and that was a particular varietal here in Panama last year. Generally, very good coffee is 83 to 87, and once you're up those numbers in the 85 to 87 range, you're in the top 3% of the coffees in the world. So when we go to Starbucks, is that what we're buying? Is it specialty coffee or is it not necessarily? That's what they're promoting. It's not necessarily always specialty coffee. Starbucks does buy coffee from the farm gate. They do buy Arabica, so that's the proper coffee for specialty coffee. They do buy it from the farm gate and sometimes they end up mixing the coffee from various farms because they have such a huge operation and they have so much demand for coffee that it's really, really difficult for them to keep up. So they have a particular brand of their own. They buy buy coffee from Panama, which is specialty coffee. They sell it as a single origin, direct trade, traceable kind of coffee, which are all adjectives that apply to specialty coffee. And they do sell that in their stores. So you can buy 15, 20, 25, $30 a pound coffee directly from Panama, for example, and many other countries in their stores. For their own restaurant blend, they have to mix it just to keep up with the volumes. Then they roast it pretty heavily to get flavor into it because it's necessary to be able to carry the coffee taste through all of the additives that most people seem to like to put in their coffee these days. Right. Now, how big is this market? Because obviously Starbucks is huge across the world. It seems like as countries develop and they become more quote-unquote westernized, they start to drink more coffee. So can you give us a sense for how big this market is and what kind of growth you see there? It is a big market and you're very right. As the developing countries come into the 21st century, coffee becomes a status symbol. You're seen drinking coffee in these countries like China and India where there's huge populations, it's a status symbol. Coffee business itself is a $90 billion business around the world. The only other business that is larger than coffee in dollar terms is oil. So it gives you an idea how big a business it is. It's a long ways between number one and number two in dollar bills, but it's still ranked number two behind oil as the largest traded commodity in the world in dollar terms. So $90 billion business, approximately 16% of that business right now is specialty coffee. So it's a significant number. And more importantly, that niche is growing at 
an annual clip of 20%. You're seeing a double every three years or so. We've been in this business four years now with this business model, and arguably we've seen it double in size. So you've got an interesting model of international coffee farms. Can you tell us a little bit about the business model, sort of the executive summary, if you would? Sure. What we do is we buy underperforming commercial coffee farms, and we turn them around into specialty coffee farms. While we're doing that, over a three-year period or so, we take the farm we buy and subdivide it into half-acre parcels. Each of these half-acre parcels is available to individuals who would like to own a piece of their own producing coffee farm in Panama. Why would you want to do that? It's really an offshore hard asset where you have money out of the country that you live in, the United States, principally Canada, Europe, Japan, Middle East, where people are coming from as our owners. You have an offshore hard asset, money out of the country, diversification, and you have a deed to that property as security. So it's yours. So you own something. You're not just a shareholder in a company with a piece of paper in your hand that says you might get some part of a dividend. You actually own a hard asset offshore. That hard asset is turnkey managed for you by us. So you have a professional group of people working all day long, growing coffee on your behalf, providing you a passive income. So deeded property, offshore hard asset, passive turnkey income. That's the reasons that most people do it with the return on investment pro forma is an internal rate of return of 12%. IRR, or an easily understood, is just an average annual yield. What period of time are you using for that? We use a 20-year slice from the start to the end of 20 years, and we use a discount rate of 10%. Got it. One interesting thing that you mentioned was that these are deeded pieces of land, so presumably you can sell them over time if you decided to do so. That's correct. It's your land, and you can do what you want with it first thing we would do if you did want to sell, once you see the numbers, and if people are interested, then we talk about it at the end of this, how to get to it. You see the numbers, after the first four to six years, five to seven years, everything is really kicked in, full production on all the farms, turnaround is complete, all of our art of coffee science, as we call it, our secret sauce is all mixed into this, it's humming along nicely. And you start to look at the numbers and you see double-digit returns annually up in the 20, 22, 25% a year range. How long do you think that would take to get to there? Um, seven to 10 years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And in the five to four to seven years, you're in 12, 14, 16% range annually. So the numbers are pretty good. So we jokingly say the first thing we're going to do is give you a psychiatric examination if you really want to sell your property, because where are you going to find a reinvestment opportunity with a 22% IRR? Right. You know, you know, so that's that's first thing. But you can, you know, seriously, yeah. you can sell it anytime right. you want. It's a three-year hold minimum to get that turnaround done. You don't want to sell in that length of time because the money that you're paying for the property includes the development costs. And if you get out too soon, you're not going to reap the benefits of those costs. So you want to keep it that long at least. We have a first right of refusal of the company to buy it from you at an agreed upon price that would represent fair market value. And fair market value can easily be established usually because that's whatever we're selling parcels for at that time would likely be the fair market value. We would buy that parcel to keep you from selling it to a third party who might be a Chinese sock manufacturer that wants to put a plant in the middle of my coffee farm. That's not going to happen. So that's the exit strategy if you would want one. Although presumably you're factoring in the fact that it's producing coffee at that point as opposed to being a fresh piece of land. 
Yeah. yeah. And so the price will be appropriate right. you know, based on what we're selling those parcels for. So 12% IRR over 20 years. Now, I'm curious a little bit about that projection because there's a lot of things going on in the world. And you mentioned, for example, 20% clip in the growth of this industry for one thing. We don't know what's going to happen with inflation in the U.S. And you're talking about an asset that is in another country. Have you factored in some of these things? It's difficult to do, but I'm curious how you do that over a period of 20 years. Yeah, we have a real growth rate built into it and an inflation growth rate built into it so that we can forecast as best you can 20, 10 years, 10, sure. 20 years out from now what the number is going to be. We have a real component and an inflation component in there. It's a dollarized economy, US dollar economy in Panama, so that takes away some of the foreign currency exchange risk or takes away all of it actually right business risk is really low it's coffee you own the land uh, it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years it's quite likely to keep going on we don't charge a turnkey management fee at all we're in the deal with all of the owners as well so we share at the bottom line with them to get our return so there's no fees or preferential numbers up front and the irr is calculated with a future value of the land at zero i don't know what the future value of the land could be in 20 years but i know it's not going to be much less than zero is this open to everyone or is it credited investors only? Or No, it's open to everyone. It's a real estate purchase. So what you're buying is a half acre parcel producing coffee farm in Panama. So it's a real estate purchase. So there are no accreditation requirements at all. In terms of just the taxation of that, is that would be considered passive income? Presumably you're not selling anything. This is not capital gains unless you sell the property. Correct. Well, that sounds great. Now, this is an interesting business model because it's not just about making money. You're actually doing a lot of good out there for the local farmers. Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of the social aspect of your business? We believe in three pillars of sustainability. One being economic, of course. If you don't make any money, you can't stay around very long. Two, green or environmental, which a lot of people pay service to. Got to leave the land better than you found it for the future generations. But we also add a third leg to that table, which is social sustainability. And we believe that the people that are working with us and for us that are producing our coffee are equally as important, if not more important, than any other inputs into the business model. So we take the farm revenues, for example, and to limit the, the risk as well as to the location of your parcel, it's really not important where you are on the farm because we pool the revenues of the farm together and we pool the expenses of the entire farm together to eliminate the location risk of your parcel in that farm. But once we have our revenues established, we take the direct costs away from our revenues for the farm, that gross operating income, 20% of which is reserved for our social sustainability program. 20% goes towards improving the lives of the coffee workers, all the way from our general manager, who's a sophisticated guy, right down to the least sophisticated 18-year-old farm helper, farm hand, who, when he receives his bonus check at the end of the year, has no clue what a bonus even is. And from there, we take the socially sustainable funding and we improve their living conditions. They're left in deplorable living conditions by their own people generally. The farmers that own the farms don't really treat the farm hands very well. They're native Panamanian Indians that do the farming here. They have been doing it for centuries. So we've taken their living conditions and remodeled the buildings, put electricity in, taken the old wooden beds out and welded up new steel beds, put five-inch mattresses on the hard wood board that they've been sleeping on, sealed up the floor so the tarantulas and spiders and scorpions can't come up through the holes in the floor and bite the kids on the feet because everybody's barefoot. We take the latrine and trash it and we build showers, running water, flush toilets, place for them to wash their clothes. All of this goes into a 
septic tank and a distribution field, a drainage field, so it's sanitary and sustainable. We put better clothing on their backs. They don't have to tie a hefty garbage bag around their shoulders to protect themselves from the rain while they're picking coffee, which is the case in many farms here. They get Heli Hansen rain gear. They're comfortable, they're warm, they're dry. They do a good job. And it's not all altruistic. I mean, obviously, if we have these people more comfortable, they're going to do a better job during the day. This is a challenging objective to train these people to not strip those branches and destroy next year's crop by ripping off the flowers and all of the buds, but by taking an individual cherry, one cherry at a time, and putting it in your five-gallon bucket and filling up that five-gallon bucket over and over and over again every day. So they need to be dressed properly, to have proper safety equipment on, etc. Then we go a little further to make their work life easier, and rather than, for example, have a hand pump when they're spraying fertilizer on the trees and they're pumping a handle 4,000 times a day to get the pressure into the tank to spray, we buy motorized sprayers. They cost quite a bit more. We use the funding from the Socially Sustainable Program to pay for those things, and they last for two or three years, and the farmers have an easier job all day, their workload is less, and they do three times as much coverage while they're spraying. So all of those things get mixed up together in what we call social sustainability to improve the lives of the coffee workers. And we have a joke, a funny little statement in, in some of our press releases that say, happy workers equals happy coffee. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. So I guess the question here is for everybody now, from my perspective and what you're talking about, you've got a socially responsible, highly profitable business plan in an industry growing at a 20% clip globally. This sounds pretty good, right? Now, I guess one of the things that's going to come up when we talk to people in my audience, a Wealth Formula podcast listeners tend to be highly educated, high paid professionals like doctors, engineers, and attorneys, and they might not actually be used to the idea of investing overseas. So they just want to ask a few questions that might be coming to their minds, such as, What does the U.S. government think about these kinds of investments compared to other investments? Do they frown upon them? Is it going to be difficult around tax time? Can you talk about that a little bit? You talking about before November 8th or after November 8th? Oh, well, actually, maybe you can clarify for us if you think it'll make a difference. They're all the same as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Lesser of two evils. But the U.S. government really doesn't have anything to say about this. We're a foreign corporation operating farms in a foreign country. We don't provide W-2s or anything else for the distribution. You being a listener as an American citizen, they're responsible for their own tax declarations based on that worldwide taxation policy of the United States. We don't have any issues. We've been doing this for over four years now. We have 850 or 900 half-acre parcels owned by individuals offshore from Panama, the vast majority of which are in the U.S. Deeds are issued and recorded here. There's no issues there. You can use your self-directed IRA account to own these parcels. It's simply a real estate purchase. So the self-directed IRA custodians who have responsibility for your funds, but not your investment decisions, have no issues with this. I don't see how the U.S. government has any influence. Does the Panamanian government Texas as well, and is that already sort of calculated in on the um, on your projections? Yeah, the Panamanian business tax is included in the projections as a cost, so that's already all paid for before you get to that 12%. Got it. And they don't tax you individually here. Well, that's nice. One other question is, again, you're talking about a an overseas investment. Let's talk about the Panamanian government. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about why you're not doing business in Mexico, and not all of Latin America is all that stable. Tell us about Panama, why you think that Panama in particular is a good place in terms of uh, stability. Panama has a extremely strong 
strong economy. During the go-go days up to 2008 or so, economy here was growing at an annual rate of about 11%, a number that even China would love to have. At the lowest part of the buckle in 2008-9, dropped to 32 I mean, the U.S. is yet to recover to anywhere near that number, never mind operate at that low a number, and the economy here is ticking along now at 6% or so on an average annual basis. So it's strong, strong economy. As of Panama Canal here, huge amounts of revenues flow to Panama from that canal. Old canal, when it was just three locks, was $900 million to a billion dollars a year coming into the country, and now it's doubled to $1.8 billion going forward to a projected $2.4 billion a year coming into the economy here. Keep in mind, there's only 4 million people living here. So, wow. strong economy. Then based on all kinds of other factors, they have an extremely large international banking industry. If 80 offshore banks want to have their international headquarters here, then I don't have a problem with doing business here. These guys are pretty sophisticated. And that huge banking system pays annual fees to this government, large numbers, to be able to have that banking license, etc., etc. So there's a continuous flow of capital into the economy from that source that really doesn't have any cost. And it's their licenses and fees. The insurance industry is the same. Very large number of international insurance companies have their headquarters here. They pay huge fees to the government. The maritime industry like 70 or 80, maybe even 90% of all the international shipping is registered in Panama. You start to look at the back end of a ship and you see Panama on there and a Panama flag. That's, there's a reason behind that. And the maritime industry uses Panama for their registration. So those however hundreds of thousands of ships that are running around the world every day pay fees to Panama. So Panama has a solid, solid economy. They also are very American-oriented. I mean, the Americans were here for 100 years, running, finishing the canal and running the canal until they turned it over in 1999. Uh, Panamanians have done an extremely good job of running it since then. And within three years of taking it over, they doubled the bottom line profits in the canal just from their own management skills. They have a great system going on here. They have an Americanized economy. I call it a halfway house for Americans. It's an easy place to come to. And Canadians too, I guess. Yeah, and Canadians too, but it's it's 30% more expensive for them right now with the dollar versus the Canadian dollar. But you can come here and it's feet, pounds, inches, gallons, miles. Um, It's U.S. dollars. People speak English. It's only two and a half hours away from Miami or four hours from Houston. It's easy to get back to the grandkids. Uh, They like Americans here. They're used to Americans here. The roads are perfect shape because they were built with American technology and know-how. So you know you don't get the crater potholes you get in Costa Rica. You drive your car right into and disappear. So the infrastructure is in great shape. Government here, ever since they took Noriega away, it's a democracy and it runs smoothly. They're elected for five years and they can't get re-elected consecutively. So the president's got five years, he's out, gone. Then he can't come back until he at least it's out of five-year term. And nobody's come back yet. So five-year terms for the president, democracy, well-run economy, plenty of money cash flow. The average per capita income here, for example, is somewhere in the $15,000 range and doesn't mean much to most people, absolutely, but number is forty-eight or 50000 in the U.S., but in comparison purposes in Central America, it's a big number. Next door in Costa Rica, the same number is probably five or $6,000. Next door to that in Nicaragua, the same number is probably $2,000. Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, $2,000. Wow. They don't have very much money, but Panama 
looking at $15,000 as a very, very solid middle class. People own their own homes here. Everybody has a reasonably new car. You can go to the bank and get a car at the same price you can get it in the States. You put 10% down and you get a loan for seven years. You pay, pay, pay. Everything's the same. It's the, You can buy your own house. Mortgages are subsidized. Kitchen gas is subsidized. Your diesel fuel or your gas for your car is subsidized. Your electricity is subsidized. The company has money and it's a well-run democracy that looks after the people. They have holes in their what they do. Their education system needs work. I mean, the infrastructure in their education system is abysmal. It needs work. But there are lots of other things to do. It's a third world country, but it's got first world clothes on it and it's looking very, very good. Very strong future. So I'm really bullish on this country. So how much does a half parcel of this land cost, uh, this coffee production? A half acre parcel is $18,000 US. And... 5% 5% transfer tax cost. So it's $900 for that. So it's $18,900 in total. So it's not a huge barrier of entry. So if somebody wants to dip their toes in this and give it a try. David, tell me about these farm visits that you have. I've seen some of these on your website. I think it's uh, for interested uh, investors. Is that right? We call it come down and kick the trees <laughs> you know, instead of kicking the tires. So right. you, you, you right. can do that at eighteen nine. It's not a huge dollar investment. It's purposely structured that way so that people can, and most people do, make an investment long before they come here. Some people do come and uh, kick the trees, but you can do that anytime before make an investment, after you make an investment, doesn't matter. The tours are held three or four times a year. Anytime you come, should you have an interest in investing in the farms or you're already an owner and you're coming to Panama on a vacation outside the time of the group tours and you're coming to Boquete, just let us know and we'll give you your own private tour. So you'll get the same experience on the farm tour that you would get with the group tour without the dynamics of all the other people being around. The group tour, next one is November 19, 2021, Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend, limited to 10 or a dozen people. I think half of those seats are taken now. It's for adults only. But what happens then is everybody gets together and we spend a Friday afternoon together. You have a little wine and cheese party. We go out for dinner. We get to know each other socially. We spend all day Saturday climbing around coffee farms. And they're steep. They're high altitude. It's bright and sunny out there, particularly in the mornings and the rainy season. It's a workout for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like fun. I mean, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. Price we'll of admission, right there. <laughs> yeah, and the price of admission is free, of course. All you have to do is get here, and we'll cover all the transportation and, and everything else for you. You pay for your hotel, but we'll host you for the first night, and uh, we'll pay for all of the drinks and the dinners and the lunches and the breakfasts and the transportation, and we'll show you around. And you'll know a lot more about coffee when you come away than you did when you got here. We'll take you through the processing mill and show you how we wash the cherries and dry the cherries and store the cherries and hull them and peel them and classify them for exports. You'll learn all kinds of stuff. Sunday morning, we'll put you into a coffee cupping class in our own laboratory so that you can then learn how these SCAA or the Specialty Coffee Association of America Q graders actually rank and grade coffee. So you'll get to do it hands-on. And Andres Lopez, our general manager, is a Q grader and a very qualified coffee guy. And we'll run that class for us. And he'll show you how to test the water and boil the water and how to put a cup the right way and how to sip and slurp and mark your numbers down. And you'll be a quasi-expert when you leave them. (laughs) So I'm sure we've got a lot of listeners potentially interested in at least learning more about what you're doing. So how can they get a hold of you? Best way to learn more is to go to the website, which is www.internationalcoffeefarms.com. When you get on the site, 
lots of information, tons of videos, pictures, and testimonials, and all kinds of other information for you to read. Once you've processed that, and, you, and if you do want more information, there's a button called Getting Started. Click on that. You'll see my shiny little face there and a little introduction and a capture box for asking for your information. If you fill in that information and hit the Submit button, then automatically you'll get an introductory email, which will explain the whole opportunity again in a summary form. And you'll get a 16-page, four-color brochure in the form of a frequently asked questions model that will probably answer 90% of the questions you have. All the questions we've ever been asked have all been put together in this book, in this booklet, and you get that automatically by hitting the submit button. So then you can read all of that. If you have more questions, then we invite you to send us an email personally. Darren Doyle, my partner and the VP of sales and marketing, will answer you personally, and he'll answer any other questions you may have that haven't been answered in the booklet. Once you get to that stage, you can make a decision whether you want to go ahead or not. And part of the decision to go ahead would be to look at our purchase agreement, which is a grand sum of two pages, the ownership agreement, which is about five pages, and our pro forma financials. So you could look at all of that. And then that's where your decision comes for whether you invest or not. Precursor to getting information that is the purchase agreement, the operating agreement, and the pro forma financials is you must complete a non-compete, non-disclosure agreement with us before we issue that proprietary information to you. That sounds pretty exciting. The other thing that our uh, listeners can do if they want to, if it's easier, just uh, shoot me an email at buck at wealthformula.com and I will certainly compile these reports for you and make it easier if this sounds something you can't remember on how to do that. <laughs> anyway, hey, David, thank you so much for being on the show. This is a really exciting opportunity and I want to thank you for sharing it with us. And More than welcome. I just wanted to remind our listeners of one thing, which is if you go to wealthformula.com right now, you can also download our special report on how to legally save thousands of dollars in taxes. And so go to wealthformula.com and we will see you next time on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, Consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.